Hi, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and very uh, pleased to be uh, hosting another episode of Occupied Thoughts today with uh, Dr. James Zogby, who is the founder and president of the Arab American Institute. Uh, Jim, really nice to have you with us. Thank you, Peter. Uh, you have a new piece out in The Nation uh, entitled, Biden Should Think Big in the Middle East. We must address the interconnected conflicts you write there as the equivalent of a regional world war that requires an international conference under UN auspices. I'd love you just to flesh out the argument a little bit. Well, I begin with uh, two starting points. One is um, that it's not possible to go back to where we were four years ago. There's a lot of discussion about restarting negotiations with Israel, Palestine, um, uh, go back to the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, what are we going to do about Syria? Should we pull out of uh, there? Uh, should we withdraw troops from Iraq? Uh, should we stop arms to Saudi Arabia free? Yemen, it, it's like one thing after another, and it's looking at each of these as separate entities. And, and the second um, issue that concerns me is that the U.S., we still talk about the U.S. as being the leader uh, and we no longer have that role. I mean, it, one of the things that always struck me is that the, the great irony of the century, the great tragedy, if you will, as well, is that uh, the Project for a New American Century had an argument about the need for a, a war like Iraq because it would show overwhelming force, decisiveness, securing America's role as the undisputed world leader for the next century. The war did exactly the opposite. It ground us down, uh, exhausted our military, caused us to lose respect all over the world. And um, more significantly, it unleashed uh, a whole series of uh, conflicts that brought to, to, uh, into the play um, local powers, uh, other global powers, uh, so that today you have um, Russia and China as well as uh, Turkey and Iran and Saudi Arabia and UAE and Israel and Egypt, all of them in one combination or another um, on different sides of conflicts throughout the region for global, uh, they're, they're fighting for, for regional influence. Uh, some have ideologies like uh, Iran and, and Turkey, one might say that, that you know, see themselves as, as uh, uh, becoming either the the, the new Ottoman Empire or the, the great Shia Empire. Um, but the reality is that they're all there and they're all on different sides. And yet we play whack-a-mole. We think that, well, we'll deal with Iran and then we'll deal with Israel, Palestine, and then maybe we'll get to Yemen and then we'll deal with this. And, and the fact is they're all interconnected. And so what, I, what I'm arguing is that we have to see them as the equivalent of a world war. It's not unlike what was going on in Europe. Uh, the, the magnitude is less, but the, 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 the reach of the conflict is, is what it is. And, and they are interconnected. It was uh, the foolish move on the part of uh, Barack Obama to not just stop a Libyan uh, Qaddafi led attack on Benghazi, but to overthrow the dictator with no idea what was coming next that caused Russia to need to find another place in the, in the Mediterranean. Uh, and Syria was what presented itself. Um, it was the Iran deal that caused Saudi Arabia to get so nervous about Iran's reach into the peninsula that 
caused Obama to agree to support Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. Um, we could make the case for why ISIS spread, why uh, Syria occurred in, in the first place. I mean, all of these had something to do with each other. And so unless you see the connectedness, you don't solve any of the, of the problems. You can't, can't deal with Turkey in Libya without dealing with resources in the Eastern Mediterranean or without dealing with Turkey's role in Iran, uh, Iraq and, and Syria, et cetera. So uh, what's the solution? Something like an OSCE, like an, uh, an Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, something that uses the, the capacity of the P5 plus one, the Security Council plus Germany, to, uh, to a greater end than just stopping a nuclear bomb uh, development in, in Iran. And, and that would be to create a regional security framework that uh, assures the countries in the Gulf region and beyond um, that there'll be a non-aggression pact, that there'll be um, uh, negotiations over the conflicts as a whole, as well as individually. Um, and that will uh, put the, the power of the Security Council uh, and the global community uh, will bring it to bear rather on uh, stabilizing a region that needs that kind of stability. Will we solve the problems? No. Did we solve the problems in Eastern Europe uh, with, the, with the OSCE? No, but did we stabilize it for a generation? We did. And right now the region needs that kind of stability. So I recognize that you're not suggesting that we can solve all these problems, but what might be some of the the bargain, the, the understandings that, 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 that different regional and global powers could come to that might move, that might move us away from, from, from some of these, these wars? Well, I use the examples of the times when we did all work together uh, to create the Madrid Peace Conference to uh, do the P5 plus one. And we used incentives and you know, kind of the threat of punishment uh, to achieve uh, certain objectives. The, the problem with the objectives is that they were too, the, the bar was set too low. It was Israel temporarily free settlements, Arabs stopped the secondary boycott to get them to Madrid, but not anything beyond. So that 11 rounds later, nothing happened. Uh, in the case of the, the Iran deal, we put all the pressure of the world community, all the sanctions that we had um, up on the table for stopping a bomb that Iran didn't have while ignoring its global meddling that had become a serious problem at that point. So the, the point here is that there, there should be incentives and there should be threat of, 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 of sanctions, but toward larger objectives. So if Iran wants regional investment, if Iran wants the guarantee that no one is going to threaten its internal stability, and will allow the Iranian forces the, domestically to solve their own problems, um, that would be an incentive for them. Um, but the trade-off would be that they would have to agree, um, hands off Iraq, hands off Syria, stop sending arms to, to Yemen. Look, in the polling that we do in Iran, that'll work. I Iranians want money invested domestically. Um, but they're not willing to challenge their own government when their government is being attacked externally. We have this notion that, well, we're putting a lot of pressure on the Iranians and that's going to make them turn against their government. And actually in the polling that we've done, it turns the opposite way. When the P5 plus one was negotiated and completed, Iranians 
turned in, the, in our polling against their government saying, okay, you got this money now, spend it on jobs, spend it on healthcare, spend it on education. The minute Trump came in and squashed the deal, Iranians turned toward their government and those things no longer became priorities, but defending themselves against the West became the priority. So yes, if we made peace overtures to Iran, if we uh, provided a sense of security uh, to them, to Saudi Arabia, to UAE, um, that would actually help diffuse the situation in the Gulf region significantly. Um, would it solve Yemen right away? No, but could there be a regional solution to at least the, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen? Is it gonna bring the Houthis to the table? I don't know, but it could strangle the Houthis from external support. Um, would it solve um, Libya? I don't think it would solve it right away because there are tribal problems in Libya, but would it take uh, Russia and Turkey um, uh, fr from squaring off against each other, uh, each pursuing their own ambitions in the, in the Mediterranean? Yeah, I think it would help diffuse that a bit. Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, you talked about wanting Iran to not meddle in Iraq and uh, Syria. It, it seems, I would imagine that Iranians, some Iranians would say, well, um, we need to be able to make sure that we're not going to have a hostile government in Iraq, given, you know, that we have a very long border there and a very bitter memory of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, we don't want a some kind of Sunni jihadist regime in Syria uh, that would also threaten us. Um, so I wonder how um, you, how or who can give the Iranians some of the assurances that might be necessary in order for them to pull back and be able to have some the confidence that, as you say, that 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 Iran that that the that the Arab world is not going to gang up on Iran, uh, perhaps with the support of the United States, and and threaten it. Well, once one has a security framework uh, and commitments from regional and global powers. Uh, to defend the integrity of each country and the security of each country and to promote regional cooperation and investment, um, you at least have that going for you. You don't have that right now. I'll tell you what is not going to make Iran secure and help stabilize the situation in Iraq is what's currently happening. Uh, that's not working. And the degree to which uh, Iranian, uh, Iraqi politics becomes more sectarian the greater the danger that an, an, a group like Daesh comes back uh, to the forefront. I mean, you know, the, the Obama administration made a horrible mistake in the withdrawal uh, because instead of using the leverage we had to ensure that a more um, uh, nationalist government that saw unity as the goal in uh, in in uh, the, in the election that took place the year before we left uh, and bringing uh, Alawi to the prime ministership, we abandoned him and we went with Maliki because it looked like he could more easily cobble together a coalition. And with the support of Iran, we thought that would stabilize the situation. <clears throat> he broke every deal we made. Um, uh, he disbanded the 100,000 Sunni militia, um, didn't bring them into the, 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 the Iraqi government's military um, he threatened his two prime ministers, both with uh, uh, threats of uh, trying them on treason and murder, forcing them into exile, one into prison. Uh, and the result was that uh, Sunnis 
being so um, uh, alienated from that government and finding that uh, Shia militia were persecuting them, turned the tables and, and ISIS was born. Uh, if we don't wanna see that happen again, the point is you need a framework in which the parties can agree uh, to a different set of relationships with each other. Look, Iran and, and all of the countries in the region are gonna be dealing with each other, uh, either with conflict under the table or sitting around a table trying to work through problems with the oversight of the international community. The latter seems a better option than the former. Right. Will it solve the problems right away? No, but will it make it less uh, combustible? I think yes. So I mean, part of the what's driving this, it seems is, is this uh, really intense competition and uh, um, confrontation even that has emerged between the Saudis and the, the UAE vis-a-vis um, -vis Iran, uh, you know, in the wake of the, of the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and, 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 and kind of, you know, uh, hypercharged by the Trump administration. Um, I wonder what prospects do you see for, what, would, what could be the terms for some kind of rapprochement between the Saudis and the Emiratis on one hand, I know there's differences between the two of them and, and Iran. The last thing that certainly the Emiratis want is a war in the Gulf. It'll kill business for uh, a, a decade or more. Um, what they want is stability because stability is business. Stability mm -hmm. is growth. Stability is prosperity for their people. Um, stability is a, a region at peace. Um, that they don't currently have. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they've been you know, uh, looking for ways to, uh, to promote that security. But I think all of them are short-sighted right now. Mm -hmm. uh, the Saudis in, in the same way, they have a, an ambitious 2030 plan. Uh, and in some ways they're in the LBJ uh, situation of having a grand vision for the future, but being ground down in a war that they don't know how to get the hell out of. Mm -hmm. um, they have incentive uh, to mm -hmm. end this. Uh, the Iranians too. Um, you know, it, it's clear that when the revolution began in 79, uh, Iran had this uh, ambition to project their resolution across the waters. Um, and they did. Uh, the Iraq war, the war with Iraq, rather, the Iran-Iraq war knocked the hell out of them and out of, uh, uh, out of Iraq. Um, and what happened with the U.S. invasion and overthrow of Saddam is that sort of took the cork off the bottle uh, and Iran all of a sudden found a volatile situation to its north. Uh, and you're right, was concerned about what kind of government would be there. Would it be an American occupation army that would threaten them? Uh, and so they became heavily in, in, in invested and uh, embroiled in internal ir ir Iraqi politics. That's not working for them right now. I mean, as we're polling in Iraq, we're finding that for the first time in the last uh, three years, that Iraqi public opinion, including Shia Iraqi opinion, is turning against Iran. Mm. Um, so there are reasons for them to, if their goal is to secure their country, to know that they will not be destabilized, to know that they will prosper and be part of a regional economy, yeah, they have an incentive to, to do this. They accepted the Iraq's uh, uh, the Iran um, uh, nuclear deal, in part because it brought them back into the world economic uh, uh, situation. They were able to trade. They were able to get some of the, 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 the wealth that their oil would otherwise not be able to provide because of the, the sanctions and boycotts. Um, they now find themselves back in that situation. Mm -hmm. We've got leverage. 
how should we use it? Should we use it just for dealing with Iran or should we use that leverage to see some kind of global uh, rapprochement? I think that the latter makes more sense to me than the former, uh, especially because um, it's not, like I said, it's not just Iran and the nuclear deal. It's not just Iran and its regional meddling. It's also all of the other countries in the region that are engaged now in competition with each other, including in the Eastern Mediterranean, including in the Red Sea, including in, uh, in, in, in Libya and across North Africa. There needs to be a regional solution to this set of regional problems. Yeah. What um, the US, it seems to be some point of leverage the Biden administration now has is the question of whether it's going to continue with the arms sales to uh, to the UAE and to into the Saudis, you know the 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 Trump administration basically was kind of willing to sell these governments pretty much anything it seems like, um, and and now the Biden administration is is wants to kind of take a look at this. Um, uh, I wonder what advice you would give them about what whether to go through with arm, these arms sales and and if so, under what conditions. Look, it's very clear to me that the arms sales, uh, the Saudi arms sales and the arrangement that we made in the Obama administration led to uh, a tremendous loss of life in Yemen um, and a humanitarian disaster. Uh, and that needs to be rethought without, without question. I'm not convinced that the region needs this huge influx of arms if it weren't for the fact that it's so unstable. So, you know, you take it off the table if you create a security framework. Now, that may not be what Raytheon and Lockheed want, right. but I think it is what the, the Saudis and the Emiratis need. Um, they need and they want to put more money into the 2030 plan, into creating the conditions of stability so, so that Expo, which has been delayed now two years, can finally uh, take place in... Uh, uh, in Dubai. Uh, I don't think that it's in the interests of the UAE to become the region Sparta as mm. much as they want to be the region's Athens, a mm. uh, place where streets are paved in gold and you can go and if you're an enterprising young Syrian or a, 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 a creative young Lebanese or Egyptian, you can go and, 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 and make your way and find your fortune, which is what so many hundreds of thousands have done. Um, the reason for the arms sales is because the region's a mess, uh, because they feel threatened, because they need a, a regional strategy to confront not just Iran, but also Turkey. Um, and they fear the Muslim Brotherhood uh, as well. Uh, create the regional framework, you take that issue off the table. Leave it alone and people continue to feel threatened and they'll be finding arms from somewhere, whether they get them from us or the French or the Chinese or the Russians. Let, let's talk about um, uh, about about Turkey. You mentioned it a couple of times. Turkey, it seems, has been in a in a quite uh, kind of ambitious, kind of say a kind of aggressive foreign policy mode. Uh, it was very much involved in the Azerbaijan's uh, successful war against Armenia, supporting it. It's it's uh, it's, it's involved in uh, in the war in in Libya. It's, it's been, um, uh, there've been a lot of tensions around its exploration and moves in the Eastern Mediterranean, as they with Greece and Cyprus. So I wonder what, um, uh, you know, there's this seems to be this kind of regional competition on the one hand between, between Turkey with a somewhat more sympathetic view towards the Muslim Brotherhood on the one hand, and then 
the UAE and the Saudis on, on the other. What do you think Turkey's strategy is or, or, or and, um, and what would you suggest, how do you think this regional kind of grouping might be able to affect it? Well, I mean, this is really not so much a problem of Turkey as it is of Erdogan. Um, this is a, a, a guy with kind of megalomaniacal <laughs> ambitions. I remember uh, back um, a decade or so ago, um, he was uh, projecting a zero problems policy with every country in the region. And he was sort of neutralizing what was happening to his South because his ambition was to gain access to the European market. I mean, he wanted to be part of the EU. Um, the EU rejected him. Uh, at the same time, the Syria war breaks out um, and he becomes involved in that, supporting some extremist groups there. Uh, and then similarly with Egypt, with Morsi. Um, and his philosophy changed from looking north to looking south. And he still wanted zero problems. Remember with, with Assad at first, they'd had an open border for trade and commerce and, and uh, both sides were prospering from it. Then after the war broke out, Erdogan changed his approach. He's gone from a zero problems to an everybody's problem. I mean, he's a problem, he has a problem with every single country that Turkey borders on. Um, and while the, uh, you know, the Azerbaijanis um, did well, Turkey did not. I mean, Russia gained the foothold there. <laughs> they're, they're administering the peace arrangement and, and Turkey's been reduced to more or less of a bystander. Um, I, I think that the Erdogan philosophy, if you could call it that, which is um, sort of, a, I mean, it's not a philosophy. What it is, is this one failed, let me try that one. And then he gets, as he sticks his finger in the, in the dike, new holes pop up. And so he's now in everywhere. He's fighting the Kurds in one place, fighting in, in Syria in another way, in Libya, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And now he's making overtures to Israel and then backing off the overtures. I mean, I, there's no coherency here other than projecting power, survival of his, his, uh, his ambition to become the the, the global Sunni leader. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, uh, Turkey will survive Erdogan. Um, it is a, a major country, um, but he is a problem. He's, he is a problem all by himself because there is no coherency uh, to, uh, to, there is a coherency to the Iranian side. There isn't one to Turkey, um, but Turkey needs to be brought, brought down a peg. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the way to bring them down a peg is to tie their hands in a regional security framework um, with Russia, uh, Germany, France. I mean, all of the major powers that the Turkey otherwise has to deal with uh, in, in effect saying this isn't gonna work. Um, and other problems will come to the fore as well. Not just the, the ones we've mentioned, but Israel, Palestine has to be part of the discussion. And the Kurdish situation has to be part of the discussion. Um, there are a, a range of, of issues that were partly created by Sykes-Picot that all have to be brought to the forefront and somehow resolved. And there's no way to do that other than to kind of undo uh, what happened uh, a century ago uh, or taking a fresh look at what happened a century ago um, in San Remo when you know, some of these problems came to the, to the fore.
and were uh, were actually created by the European powers. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's hope that we have an American administration with the um, with the creativity um, uh, to to think in these terms and and in the capability to actually uh, execute them. Since since um, let me, let me uh, just say one last yeah. thing. I think part of the problem is that it's not just what policy ought to be. It's what thinking ought to be in, in the region itself. Right now, no one sees, it's sort of like being in the pandemic, right? And you can't see where am I going to be next month? What, what does the future look like? Where are we going to be? And right now, people don't see that. Hence, arms sales, hence conflict. Um, hence, in some cases, despair and depression. Uh, there needs to be a vision of the future that's compelling enough to draw people, to draw thinkers, to draw some of the region's leaders to it. And one of the ways to do that is to project a future that involves regional cooperation, that involves regional investment. When we poll and we say to people in the countries in which we poll, which are most of the countries in the region, what are your top priorities for the future? And the one is regional investment and increased prosperity, regional cooperation. That's what they want, but there's no way right now for them to see their way to it if the United States and other superpowers, together with some local uh, some local leadership were to say, this is where we want to go. Even if you don't get there in the Biden administration, it puts it on the table as an item to be discussed and something for people to think about. And that I think would be the, 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 the most uh, beneficial um, objective served in the short term by just creating an alternative future that people can think about and, and, and plan and maybe work their way toward. Well, on, on that hopeful note, Jim, I think you've done a, a service by laying this out in the piece. I'd really recommend people take a look at the at the essay on the nation called Biden should think big in the Middle East. And uh, thanks so much for spending some time with me. Thank you, Peter. Take care.